So again, I'm going to be reading in John 19, uh, 1 through 30. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So, they de so he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us tear, not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. This is God's word. Amen. <clears throat> we uh, watched a Father's Day video a minute ago, uh, peppered with lots of dad stereotypes. Um, I'll add another. A father's love for his children is equaled only by his love for his favorite players and coaches on sports teams. <laughs> I'm evidence of that. Um, I don't even know the name of the mayor of Petaluma, but I know the college of Jordan Poole that he attended, uh, the year and number at which he was drafted, I even know what his dad looks like, all because he plays for the beloved and world champion Golden State Warriors. Um, go Dubs. My favorite team of all teams, though, is uh, the University of North Carolina men's basketball team. And there's not just a reason, but there's a person behind this. His name is Dean Smith, Dean E. Smith. Coach Smith was a relatively unknown uh, replacement for a Hall of Fame coach. And at the beginning of his tenure, without any clout, he joined his pastor and black theology student to sit in at segregated restaurants in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This was about 60, 60 years ago or so. Doing this was extremely unpopular, as you can imagine. He was vilified by the local restaurant owners for doing it. It was a tremendous risk as a new head coach of a, of a prominent program as a relatively unknown person. Recently, a famous alum uh, shared another story about Coach Smith during what would be the last year of his 37-year tenure as the head coach of the University of North Carolina. An assistant coach was getting on a transfer player uh, from Senegal named uh, Maktar Jai. He was getting on him about his effort in practice and as the coach raised his voice, uh, Maktar refused to look at him in the eye. And so he kept looking down. And later, Coach Smith approached Maktar about this. And he said, you know, why wouldn't you look him in the eye? And Maktar responded, in my culture, it's disrespectful to look an elder in the eye when they're speaking with you. Coach Smith replied with a simple okay, and he walked away. Well, the next week, that assistant coach didn't show up to practice, just simply wasn't there. And at the end of the week, Maktar's mother called him on the phone from Senegal. She said, son, there's a man here that claims to be your coach. I know Coach Smith, but I don't know this man. Uh, he said, he's been in Senegal for a week already, and he's staying one more because he says he needs to learn about our culture. A coach flew all the way to Africa in the middle of a season to learn about his player's culture. Three different people sent me this story over the past week. Three different people who weren't players for Coach Smith or anything like that, but that we would all run through a wall for this man. He wasn't the most successful coach. He was very successful, not the most successful in terms of wins. He was not at all an inspiring speaker, far from it. But the authority of his life and thus his words 
transcended even that of his players to the point where people were texting me about this story this past week. People who didn't even know him. My question is why? Why is it that some people who are endowed with authority actually possess really little of it, while others of little repute wield tremendous influence in our lives? Why is this? Well, we're nearing the end of our series, John's Questions for Life, in which we, every Sunday we've been looking at the most important questions about life asked by Jesus and of Jesus in this account of his life shared by his good friend John. And this morning we listen in to the prefect or governor in the first century Judea, Pontius Pilate, a man endowed with significant authority. He asked Jesus, don't you know that I have authority? And yet we sense whenever someone has to announce their authority, They've already lost darn near all of it, right? So we sense this loss of authority and influence in others. My question is, can we see it in ourselves? Am I someone who possesses influence or do I, like Pilate, simply assume that I do, maybe based on my position or who I am? So we've read what for many of you is, is a familiar account of Jesus' crucifixion. But this morning, we're going to think about that through the lens of Pilate's question to Jesus about authority. Because that's the question that's being asked here. And what we're going to see is three things. We're going to see the illusion of authority. We're going to see what true authority really is. And finally, we're going to get an example of what authority really looks like in people's lives. So first, let's look at the illusion of authority. Pontius Pilate, he faces a conundrum. And I think, let's, let's you and I kind of weigh this together. Imagine being this leader of a people that's not your people. You're brought in. We're going to imagine what he's going through together. As a Roman uh, prefect or governor of Judea, his ultimate calling is to administer justice to people like any, any good leader. And it's, as is twice stated here, he finds no guilt in Jesus. So he looks at this man and he says, there's no guilt in this man. Furthermore, he's aware that these religious leaders have come to him with Jesus because they have an ulterior motive in their hearts. And another one of, uh, and another biography about Jesus' life, another follower of Jesus named Matthew records that, quote, Pilate knew it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up to him. Matthew 27, verse 18. It was out of envy that they bring Jesus to him. In addition, we learn in Matthew's gospel that that Pilate's most trusted confidant, his wife, has suffers this terrible dream the night before about Jesus, that that he's a righteous man and that Pontius should have nothing to do with him. So he has all these reasons to release Jesus. And so that's why we see witness to Pilate time and again to try, try to find all these different outlets, all these different ways to release Jesus, to set him free. And yet, the time-tested ways to hold on to a governorship that Pilate knows about include things like keeping the peace, upholding the local laws, and not appearing to be disloyal 
to Caesar, to the king who put you into that place. And guess what the religious leaders do? They threaten all three of these things. Right? They gather together a mob of angry people. They appeal to their law, which according to their interpretation means that Jesus should be summarily executed, it says in verse 7. And notice in verse 8, that frightens Pilate. He says, oh man, they're appealing to their own laws. I'm supposed to help keep those. And when they don't produce their intended effect, the religious leaders challenge Pilate's loyalty to the king, to Caesar himself. It's important to note, Pilate was more vulnerable than most governors because uh, he was a lower rank by birth. And in in Roman society, that was a big deal. If, If you were a lower rank, his relationship with the emperor was all that he had. So he's vulnerable. And so you can feel him, can't you, weighing this dilemma. On the one hand, do I do my job? On the other hand, do I keep my job? (laughs) Right? Do I do it with justice and righteousness? Do I do what I'm supposed to do? Or do I keep this job that I have? And so Pilate thinks, well, maybe the accused will help me get out of this conundrum. I'll use my title, my, my position, and make this power play. And maybe if I say something to him, he'll offer me a way out. He'll, he'll say something that'll give me a way out. So he says, don't you know I have authority to crucify you or to release you? And Jesus offers a brilliant response. Let's look at it again in verse 11. He says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Essentially, he says, Your authority, Pilate, is way more limited than you'd like to imagine. Way more limited. On the one hand, Pilate has an actual choice, right? He could risk the security of his position to do right by Jesus. Give him a just decision. On the other hand, he doesn't seem to practically have any choice at all, right? Rioting, unrest, charges of treason, laid an open view to an already capricious, unpredictable emperor like Tiberius was. It's not hard to see the parallel to today's politicians, right? Who are elected with a mandate to serve their constituents by passing legislation. But as we watch our politicians, even in real time, even like this week, we see that they are really beholden both to win their next primary election... (laughs) and to lobbyists, right? To, to, they're beholden to popularity and to money. So every time that a need arises in our country, in our state, in our county, we hold out this sort of 1% hope that maybe this time, but really we also accept the inevitability of probably not. Probably gridlock. Well, Political dilemmas like Pilate's illustrate how God's sovereign plan works. It's both 100% God's sovereign plan and 100% human beings' free choice. But God works His plan through free agents knowing how their hearts operate. God works His plan through free agents knowing their hearts, knowing how their hearts operate. Now, the religious leaders also believe they have authority. They buy into this illusion as well. But in order to, to preserve their religious authority, they do something they would never have considered doing if it wasn't for Jesus. They bow the knee to Caesar. And I can't over-exaggerate 
how the people and their leaders despised the Roman occupation. Yet in this moment, they decide to blurt out, we have no king but Caesar. Remember how all the times they tried to trap Jesus about Caesar and about taxes and all those things? They, they didn't want to ever bow the knee to Caesar. They wanted a revolt, ultimately. And yet here, because of Jesus, they blurt out, we have no king but Caesar. And in one breath, they, they abandoned their connection to King David, to the messianic hope, to God's kingship. See, friends, what happens is the, the appeal to authority unmasks the illusion of it. The appeal to authority unmasks the illusion of it. History forever records here in verse 19, and apparently in three languages, that Jesus of Nazareth is king of the Jews. Remember, they were trying to do everything to prevent him from being king of the Jews by trying to hold on to and appeal to their authority over the people, they lose it. That's what happens, right, with authority. You try to hold on to it, you try to announce it, you try to lord it over people, and you lose it. Pilate's condemnation of Jesus leads to mankind's redemption and the beginning of Jesus' reign as king. You see the irony of it, right? You try to hold on to authority, you lose it. Or you show that you never had it in the first place. And before we sort of blame today's political and religious leaders and move on, we need to take a look at ourselves. I need to take a look at me. God may have put you in a position of authority, a position of authority, right? You could, as a parent, uh, maybe a grandparent, maybe a boss, a board member of some organization, an elder or deacon in a church, whatever it may be, He's put you in that position. But think about it. How many times as a parent or a grandparent have you appealed to because I said so when parenting your kids? And sometimes I get it. Because I said so, it's at times necessary in those emergency moments, but it should not be our default. Right? Our parent, our, our child should sense our authority by the way we love and serve them over time. That we care for them, that we lay down our lives for them. That's why I love this show, The Undercover Boss. You ever see this show? People like it. It's been so attractive and popular because it forces bosses to get their hands dirty, do the menial work, and actually hear on the ground floor how little authority they actually possess over their people and have in their lives. And it moves some of them towards servant leadership, doesn't it? They think, I'm going to change how I'm going to lead. I'm going to serve people, and that's going to give me influence. Or maybe you don't think of it so much as authority or as influence. Maybe you're as a friend, as a natural leader of a group, as a spouse. Ultimately, anytime we find ourselves like Pilate, saying to ourselves, have they forgotten who I am? Have they forgotten who is talking with them? We've probably lost all influence in their lives. The good news is there's another way there's another way to have influence in people's lives. And that's by way of true authority. Look with me again at verses 28 through 30, where Jesus shows his true authority to the uttermost. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, 
John, who is writing this, is himself a Jew. And an effective way to hammer home one's point in the Jewish tradition, in Jewish literature like the Old Testament, was to use a, a device called parallelism. And parallelism is just a fancy way of saying repeating the same thing twice. Sometimes in the, with the same word, sometimes with a slightly different word. And we see it here in verses 28 and verse 30, right? It's highlighted up on the screen for you. Where we see Jesus say both, or we hear a set of Jesus both finished and thirst. And then verse 30, it is finished, gave up his spirit. Finished, thirst, finished, gave up his spirit. John's telling us something here about Jesus in contrast to the secular and religious leaders we just talked about and which John just described. We know instinctively that no one in history has ever exercised the kind of authority Jesus has over the past 2,000 years. No one has been quoted, written about, worshipped, been at the source of all kinds of uh, movements for justice and for health in history as Jesus has, right? We can all at least agree on that, whether you believe in Jesus or not. You have to acknowledge this. How does Jesus earn this authority and influence? Not, I would argue, because of his position as God, but because of what he does while on earth. He serves us with his death. He serves, he serves, he serves his whole life, and then he serves us with his death by securing for us a love relationship with God forever. I'll say that again. He serves us with his death by securing for us a love relationship with God forever. And so you see this, this parallelism of Jesus bringing us security and Jesus bringing us that security through his service. So I want to talk about both of these things. It is finished. Jesus provides security. God famously saved his people once before through the use of blood, the blood of an unblemished lamb. It's through a famous story in the book of Exodus. God delivered his people from Egypt and from slavery by putting the blood of a lamb on their doors. And ever since, on, on the 10th day of Nisan, each family was supposed to select a lamb from their flock for this celebration of Passover. And then on the day when Passover came, the lambs would be presented at the temple mount. And once all the, the lambs were sacrificed, the temple priests would all cry out, Kalah! And Kalah in Hebrew means, it is finished. It means they were, they were crying out, God is satisfied and will pass over your sins again this year. So when Jesus cries out, it is finished, he is saying God is satisfied and will pass over your sins forever. Not just this year, not just today. You have no longer have to worry. It is forever. You are forever loved by God through your trust in Jesus. There's nothing you can do that can cause him to love you anymore or any less. And that is good news. Your position as God's son or daughter is completely secure because the work has been finished by Jesus. He also says here, thirst gave up. In other words, Jesus served. To thirst is to empty oneself of life itself, of all water. And, 
And as he does so, he fills others with God's water that will never stop flowing for them. A water welling up to eternal life. He gave up, literally handed over his spirit, which was the part of himself that was alive to his father. He gives up his spirit. As as the great commentator Craig, Craig Keener pointed out, he gives up his spirit so that his spirit may be multiplied to all who would follow and trust him. In other words, he gives and he thirsts so that others can have. Um, I had the opportunity this week to serve someone uh, by sitting with them the day they lost a a loved one. And um, it was an amazing opportunity for me and an honor. Um, It wasn't something that I had to do as their pastor. Um, And I need to say this too, it's not something natural for me I want to make this clear. Sitting with someone is not my instinct. I can't emphasize this enough. I, I am afflicted as a human, as a, as a man. I'm afflicted with the disease of selfishness. When I wake up in the morning, I think about me. When I go to bed at night, my tendency is to think about me. <laughs> that's, just, that's just who I am. I want to point this out. I am the least likely person to serve, but every once in a while, God helps me. And as I sat with this dear woman, um, asking questions, listening, being with her uh, after other people had left, but I did this because deep down, not because I'm a good person, but because I'm made deeply secure in the eternal love of God who proved his love for me by serving me to the uttermost. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I sat with this person and um, I think they felt served and secure that I cared. They shared with that they felt a little bit lost in life. And because I sat with them, I, I think I had the authority to, to be able to say, hey, God, my God told stories about lost people. He told these stories about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. He loves lost things. And he came to die for lost things. And friends, that's the message in a nutshell this morning. Um, If you remember nothing else, remember this, that true authority requires service and security. True authority requires service and security and security. And you might argue, well, isn't Jesus' example of service enough? There are plenty of people serving like Jesus did without the security of a forever relationship with God. But what you'll find throughout history, and there's tons of examples of this I read about this week, people who gain authority to speak into and influence the, the lives of others through their service. But once they get there, The incentive to hold on to security, to keep the position of power is far more powerful influence than the desire to serve people. In other words, people serve, they give their lives, they earn that authority, that power, they get in positions, and then they want to keep that position of authority. We're all prone to it. I'm prone to it. I feel it even in my position as a pastor. I feel it. The most likely person to serve that maybe I've ever known was this friend of Katie and I's in Cayman when we served there in the Cayman Islands where we lived for nine years, if you didn't know that. Um, 
This woman, I'll, I'll call her Kara. She had this huge heart to serve. You know, she's just one of those people that was naturally loving and she earned authority and influence in others' lives by going the extra mile for this. And she did this so much that this grew into an entire organization around her. Well, a few years in, someone qualified to help her organizationally, to help structure the organization better, came to her and said, hey, I want to help you with this. But helping you with this mean, would mean that you have to surrender some of your authority. She couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. This is someone who believed in Jesus, but, but she believed that Jesus' love for her was conditional, that it was conditional according to her level of service. That the more she served, the more Jesus loved her. When she didn't serve well, Jesus didn't love her. So she held tightly to her position because she feared if she let it go, she wouldn't be serving enough, enough for Jesus to love her. This is someone we knew well. And it was heartbreaking to watch because she continued to serve, but the organization around her crumbled, as did her authority in people's lives, her influence with people. This is why so many people have had a hard time succeeding and replicating the influence of people like George Mueller and his, his orphanages or Mother Teresa with her charities because ironically, trying to hold on to that position of influence, we lose it. And we think, well, but how can I give up something so important and, and precious? I, I've, I've gotten this position now to serve others. I don't want to give it up. And that's a fair question. The only way we can risk our status is if we've gained something greater that we cannot lose. The only way we can risk our, our position we have now of having influence in someone's life is because if we've gained something that we cannot lose, and that's what Jesus gives us when he says, it is finished. He gives us something that we can never lose, and so we can risk everything to serve another. Jesus isn't just the example of service, you see. He's the security that can empower a life of self-giving service to others, see? So having seen that, let's look briefly at an example of how Jesus does this. An example of true authority, briefly to close our time together, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother, here he goes, see, Jesus is going to serve. And when he saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, that's John, by the way, when he saw his mother and John standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. John gains a mother, and Mary gains a son to serve her. What I, what I want us to see, though, here, and here's the twist we might not recognize, is that John, standing there at the cross, John was the least likely person, among the least likely person, to serve Mary in this way. As the eldest son, Jesus, he had in that culture the final responsibility of providing for his mother. Yet, Mary had other sons by birth. Did you know this? Mary had other sons. It's recorded throughout the Gospels. She had other sons. All more likely choices to care for Mary than John was. 
However, you may recall from earlier in John's gospel, maybe not, that Jesus' brothers don't yet trust Jesus as their Lord as John does. It says in John chapter 7, verse 5, even his brothers did not trust in him. Jesus knows that only John can be willing to risk any and everything to serve his mom because only John has gained something greater that he cannot lose, that he can never lose. See, John has gained an eternal security they can never lose. So he will give everything and anything to serve his mom. He selects John to serve her. John is secure in the position of being forever loved by his God. What I don't want you to walk away from this morning is to think simply, oh, serving others like Jesus gives you influence in their lives. No, 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 no. It's not just that. You're hearing me wrong. It's not just that. It is that, but it's not just that. It has to be service and security. Our friend Kara was a far more likely servant than me. Jesus' brothers, a far more likely servant than John. Yet only one who, who truly has nothing to lose can afford to lay down his position, his title, his life for others. That's the security you can have in Jesus Christ and the kind of security you can offer others when you serve them. Because it is finished. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for serving us, living a life of service and dying a death of service so that we can know we're forever loved by God in a secure relationship with him simply by trusting in you, Jesus, to forever forgive us and as the Lord of our life. That's all you require is a simple trust in you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your example of service. And thank you for making us secure that we might serve others, that we might pass on to others that sense that they are loved and that they're secure in that love with us, that they're unconditionally loved. We're, we're passing on that sense of service and security that you have given to us. We get to pass it on to others. But the only way we can do that is if we ourselves are secure in that love, that we ourselves can risk our positions of authority or influence or whatever that position might be, help us be constantly willing to lay it down for others, knowing that even if they reject us, even if, if things go sideways, that we're always loved by you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.